This podcast has not been sanctioned. The battleground was Monday nights. 80. For a campaign of 83 consecutive weeks. 3. There was a clear winner. This is the war. Weeks. This is the story of that campaign. 83 weeks. 20 years later, the time has come for the whole truth. For the whole truth. This is 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff and Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? It is outstanding. Another great week. And we're already in the month of June. Just, I mean, spring has flown by. I'm getting ready for the 4th of July in Wyoming, something I look forward to every year. Family reunion, friends, family, cooking, big green egg, cold beer. Awesome. I think we, you and I need to have like a, a big green egg cook off at some point because I think I could smoke you. Unintended or not? Well, we'll figure it out, right? I'm just saying. <laughs> I, 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 I want you to smoke me. Um, <laughs> well, that's part of the I, deal here. I'm, we roast <laughs> Eric Bischoff, but, you know, we just do it with some hickory chips, right? <laughs> I, you know, I'm good at certain things. I'm, I, you know, not that it's tough, but I'm amazing at turkey. I brine my turkey for 48 hours. I slow smoke it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm great with turkey. I'm really good with reverse searing. I'm exceptional. Like maybe one of the best in the world at wild game. Really? Um, just because I do so much of it. I mean, I cook wild game two, three times a week on the big green egg. So I'm pretty good at that. That's all. Um, but that's about it. You know, I don't have like a ton of stuff that I'm good at. But the, the things that I am good at, I'm <laughs> I'm pretty fucking awesome. I, I love. I don't have a ton of things I'm good at. That's like how you start your dating profile, right? I don't have a ton of things I'm good at, but hey. So let's talk about uh, why we're here today. Of course, it's all about the American Dream, Dusty Roads. But before we get there, I guess we should follow up on what might be our biggest show in history. All about Chris Jericho and WCW. What was the feedback you got, man? You know it. It was pretty positive. You know, I got, I got a little bit of negative stuff in there, but it was for the most part, I think it was pretty positive. I was, I was happy to read most of it. I don't recall anything that really stuck out as a, uh, as a, as a tough, you know, criticism of the show or anybody trying to call anything out. I mean, most people really dug it. Well, I know How about who, you, I know who else dug it and that's Chris Jericho. I think he's planning a response. Uh, he was pleased with the show and shocked that we went four hours or almost four hours. We're breaking the mold here on some of these marathon episodes. And if you missed Chris Jericho in WCW, which I think is one of our better shows. I know when we finished taping, you thought that maybe the DX invasion episode was better. I actually greatly preferred this one. I think this may have been my favorite show so far on Chris Jericho. If you haven't already. Go check it out, 83weeks.com, and be sure to hit the subscribe button. We would love to get a review from you as well and interact with you on Twitter also. He is E. Bischoff. I am Matt Hey Hey. It's Conrad, and we are covering the American Dream Dusty Roads. Of course, we're on a bit of an unfortunate anniversary here. We lost Dusty three years ago today, and I wanted to uh, sort of switch the style up of our show today and maybe have less cross-examination and more just uh, stroll down memory lane. And Eric, you watched wrestling as a kid. You know, what was your earliest memories of seeing Dusty Rhodes, the performer? You know, I first saw, and I remember it so vividly. It's, 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 it's amazing how some things stand out in your mind as clearly as they do. 
um, even though there were so many years ago. And, and Dusty Rhodes' first appearance, at least as, it, it, in my experience, watching AWA in Minneapolis when I was about 15 years old, I think. Yeah, I would have probably been about 15 years old. Um, I was watching, you know, AWA was on Saturday nights at 6 o'clock on KMSP Channel 9, the independent station in Minneapolis, I believe. And it was a promo. You know, and Vernon was really great at promos. And, and I shouldn't say, you know, better than anybody else in, in the regional, you know, the territory system at the time because obviously I didn't watch anybody else's territory. I was living in my own. And this was before cable television and all that. But it, there were so many top talents that came through AWA because Fern's territory in Minneapolis, the upper Midwest was a territory that everybody wanted to work. He made a lot of money because everybody drew really, really well. So all of the talent that came through the wrestlers that came through made a good payday coming through there as a result of that. But also because of the way the territory was structured, you know, you only had to work three or four days a week. It wasn't like working down south where, you know, th there were so many small towns all within 100 miles of each other. So as a promoter, you could have guys working every night or sometimes, you know, two times a day, you know, on a weekend. Uh, in Minneapolis, because everything was spread out so far, it was pretty much a weekend town. Uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday type of thing. So, so the talent loved it for that reason. As a result of that, we got such a great influx of some of the best talent from around the country. And Dusty was one of them. And I was sitting at home, you know, one Saturday afternoon, probably getting ready to go out with my friends or whatever later on and watching. And there was a scene where and it was the first time I saw Dusty, you know, because that's one of the other great things about the AWA is when they premiered somebody coming into the territory, Vern did a really good job of making it feel special. So the, the scene was, um, kind of a wide shot looking over an outdoor swimming pool. So it was obviously in the summertime and Marty O'Neill was talking. He was, he was the G Gene Oakland at the time. Uh, Marty O'Neill was setting it up, setting it up, setting it up. And then <laughs> Dusty Rhodes comes out of the water. He comes up from underneath the water, kind of like the shark and jaws with a cowboy hat on in a big shitty and grin on his face <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he cut his promo and, you know, I had never seen anything like that. You know, typically your, your wrestling promos were, you know, your announcer in this case, Marty O'Neill standing there with a, you know, stick microphone and setting up the interview and doing that traditional kind of wrestling promo, you know, back in that day. And this one was so bizarre. It's so unique to see big old dusty coming up from <laughs> out of the water, like jaws, uh, wearing this cowboy hat was just funny as shit. So let's talk about, you know, when you may have actually seen him somewhere else. The first time you work with him is not in the AWA it's in WCW, right? Yeah. I think, you know, dusty was part of the hiring process. Uh, you know, when Jim heard hired me and it was, it was you know, it, it all took place in one day. I mean, they, they flew me down to Atlanta. They, meaning Jim Hurd and WCW, flew me into Atlanta from uh, Minneapolis. They put me up at the Omni Hotel. Um, I think it was a Sunday night. And then Monday morning, I was scheduled to go down to the production studios and an audition. And they, you know, the, uh, we'll talk about this another time, I'm sure. But, you know, they had, had me audition with Diamond Dallas Page to do play-by-play. 
and w- which was awkward for a lot of reasons we'll cover in the future. But um, after I got done, you know, doing all the things they wanted me to do on tape, uh, they said, all right. It was by that time, by the time we finished, it was probably about 11, 11.30 in the morning. And they said, okay, we're going to send the tapes up to uh, to Mr. Hurd and, you know, go have lunch and, you know, check in in about an hour and a half or two hours and we'll figure out where we go from here. So, I, you know, I went to the Omni Hotel and just had lunch. Uh, that's where my room was, hung out for a little while and finally got the call from Keith Mitchell in the production studio in, in WCW. And he said, all right, well, come on back down. So I came back down and they walked me up to Hurd's office. And during that period of time, that couple hours, you know, Hurd looked at the tapes. He called Dusty in uh, to get Dusty's opinion. And I think one or two other people, I'm not sure who was in the room. Uh, and I got the gig. And I met Dusty, you know, shortly thereafter, just just briefly. It was very brief. I was on my way out the door and literally getting to the airport so I could fly back to Minneapolis after I was told I got the job. And I didn't see Dusty again until they flew me in for my first TV taping in Anderson, South Carolina. So that would have been, what, sometime in mid-91? Yeah, I think it was in June June or July, somewhere in there. I know you were there for uh, the July Great American Bash, so probably June. You know, Dusty was uh, sort of on the heels of a Vince run where he was, of course, famously in the polka dots. As a fan, what did you think of Dusty's time in the WWF? You know, I didn't really watch it. I mean, I was aware of it. I, right. I knew that it had happened, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a big WWF fan at that time. Um, I, I tuned into it. I was aware of it. I checked it out, but it was more just to kind of analyze it a little bit as opposed to study it. If that makes sense. I mean, I, I would drop in just to see what was going on. It's kind of like skimming the news, I guess. Uh, you read the headlines, dig into a story or two, if it makes sense or if it's interesting, but I didn't, you know, immerse myself in the WWE and, you know, I knew little of Dusty. You know, I knew he had been in Minneapolis. Right. Um, I was aware of him from from his time there. Um, I didn't really watch a lot of WCW before getting hired there. TBS was not uh, a very popular network in the upper Midwest, so it just wasn't something that I watched. And we didn't get it in syndication. <clears throat> so I was really not very familiar with WCW, even when I got hired there. I had to do some research <laughs> going down. But uh, to to be specific about the question, um, I was aware that Dusty did it. I didn't really dig it, didn't really understand it. It was so abstract and different than the Dusty Roads that I recall, the blue collar, right. you know, son of a plumber and, you know, every man kind of a character. And to see him doing what he was doing made me kind of scratch my head. But I I didn't really think about it a whole lot. So let's talk about that. You know, a lot of people, when they first meet Dusty Rhodes, if they grew up a big wrestling fan and maybe in his territory, they probably were fairly intimidated. What was your first impression of Dusty once you actually had an opportunity to sort of meet him and work with him in 91? Man, he was just the opposite of that for me. He, he... I, I want to be careful that I don't overstate this and make it, make it sound like I'm trying to put myself over, but he, God, I can't think of a better way to say it though. He kind of took me under his wing right? in a way. Um, he knew I was an outsider. 
He knew I came in with a fair amount of heat. Uh, he probably knew, as Jim Hurd told me, that the only reason Jim Hurd was bringing me in was to make Tony and Jim Ross miserable and to put pressure on them. Um, I was the, you know, I was the northerner. Everybody else in in WCW at that time was was from the NWA, was from the kind of southern regional territory, and I was the, you know, Ken Doll weatherman. Right northerner you know coming in to just be disruptive is basically it and i i you know i just got the sense whether i was right or wrong i just got the sense he was kind of taking me under his wing and protecting me a little bit he wanted to make sure i understood that i understood the ropes and, and i knew what i was getting into politically well let's talk about that because the politics were a big part of wrestling here especially in the company dusty even wrote in his book that once he comes back to work for Turner, it's fun to start with, but it's not long before those politics start to emerge. Was he sort of giving you the lay of the land as far as the, the politics go? And what were some of his, you know, rules of thumb, or did he have any bit of wisdom he could drop on you? Give you any advice in that regard? No, it wasn't like that. It was, I mean, it's not like he said, okay, kid, here's, here's this guy over here and here's his agenda and here's this guy over here and here's what he's going to try to do. I mean, he, he didn't lay it out like that, but it became very apparent. Look, one of the first things that he did, my very first television taping, um, you know, rather than me, you know, letting me just rent my own car and drive by myself or hitch a ride with one of the other, you know, talents, um, Dusty said, no, man, no kid, you're going to ride with me. You, you, that, that's what I mean by bringing me in under his wing. He made sure that, you know, going to and from the buildings when they were road trips, uh, not necessarily when we were flying, but, you know, going to Anderson, South Carolina or Charlotte or, you know, Dothan, Alabama, wherever we were going. Um, I always rode with him and Janie Engel, who was his executive assistant, and Doug Dillinger. It was always the four of us. And just, you know, having that ride time, you know, that road time with Dusty and listening to the conversation and listening to Janie and Dusty and Doug, you know, talking about what's going on. And, and, and you, you just, you, you begin to get the lay of the land kind right. of by default, but that was how he kind of immersed me in the culture of WCW at that time, just by exposing me to, to his world, um, at that level. And, and like I said, just kind of watching out for me. I can't think of a better way to say it than that. Do you ever have a conversation with him? Cause you're, you're hanging with him really fresh off of his New York run. And he was an in-ring performer there, but when he gets to Turner, he's behind the scenes, he's helping book, he's doing some color, but he's not in the ring. And he's made it very clear that he's retired on air. Did you ever get the vibe from him that, and I think this is common with a lot of, you know, old school wrestlers. They think they got one more run left in them. Did he ever talk about what he could do if he was to get back in the ring? Hypothetically, he never did, you know, and we spent a lot of time together. Um, as time went on, we became pretty good friends, uh, socially. And, you know, we'd, we, at the end of the day, we'd, we'd go up to the Omni bar, uh, in the CNN center and, and sit down and have a couple beers and, cause he liked to hunt, you know, we had a lot of things in common. You know, he, I think he liked the fact that I worked for Vern Gagne and I came out of that college, if you will, out of that right. university. Um, he had a lot of respect for Vern and I think he had a, a as a result, you know, he, he, 
he gave me the benefit of the doubt coming out of that territory and, and out of that type of training. Um, but beyond that, you know, we like to, he liked to fish. He liked to hunt. You know, we, he, he loved the West. You know, he was into horses, right. uh, much like, you know, I was, I am. So we had so many things in common outside of wrestling that it was easy for us to get along and talk about all kinds of shit that had nothing to do with the business. Of course we talked about the business, but it wasn't like that was the only thing that we had in common. Um, so we did spend a lot of time together and during the time, I have to be honest, I never got the impression looking back at it now that he was anxious to get back into the ring. I don't think he was, I think he was anxious to create Dusty was an amazingly creative person and driven and, and he had so many ideas and so much vision. Um, it was almost like he was, he, he was just, just chock full of it and he, and he couldn't get it out fast enough. He had so many ideas. Uh, and he would be, he would become so passionate talking about a vision, a story, you know, a character, whatever it was, whatever it was. Um, he, you could tell that he wasn't just giving you the top line and, you know, kind of what was at the, off the top of his head. He, he had really given a lot of thought to the ideas th that he had, like I said, whether they were stories or characters and he, he was so passionate about it that it was captivating. I mean, you couldn't help but get sucked into it. It was kind of cool. One of the things that, uh, they flirt with here now that dusty has the book is creating a replacement for Paul Heyman's or Polly dangerously rather danger zone. It's basically a talk show segment, you know, similar to a Piper's pit, I guess. And they started taping these in like may and June of 91, right before you were there. And they called it bull drop in. And his co-host is someone, you know, quite well, Jason Hervey. Any memories that you can share about how that came to be the segments themselves? I mean, did you know Hervey before WCW? It is sort of a, a weird footnote when you flip back through and see, wow, Jason Hervey did something with dusty Rhodes. I didn't remember that. Yeah, no. I, and obviously that was before my time. And I, I didn't know Jason before WCW and I certainly had nothing to do or was aware or had heard anything about those segments uh, prior to getting there. So, uh, no, that's all, you know, history that I've, I can read about, but I had nothing to do and didn't hear anything about it. So you guys get there or you actually get there in July. 91 is the first time we see you on TV at least. And around that time, dusty's doing a lot of stuff, including color commentary. Um, but fairly quickly WCW executives, I guess, Turner executives rather decide to pull the plug on both the bull drop in segment. And they even pulled Dusty off of commentary for the Clash of the Champions. And Meltzer would write that Turner executives wanted less Dusty on camera. Do you remember that change happening? And do you think Dusty had enemies at Turner? Or why were people sort of souring on Dusty in the summer of 91? Again, there's no way. I mean, that would have <laughs> that would have not dribbled down to my level at that point. I was, brand, I was a C-squad announcer, brand new in the job. So. Sure you know, th th those kinds of politics and, and inner workings and machinations would have not landed on my radar, have no idea. Look, I know that there was, you know, I want to be careful here. Cause this is, this is, this show is, you know, to honor Dusty's memory. And I, I don't want to get into any kind of negative stuff here if I can sure. avoid it, Yeah. but to, you know, to put things in, in its proper context, because we all know context is king. Um, 
there was, you know, there was a there was friction here between Dusty and Jim Ross, Dusty and Jim Hurd, Jim Hurd and Jim Ross. I mean, it was. There was a lots of politicking going on, you know, and I became aware of it later on. I, I certainly wasn't aware of it during the specific time that you just pointed out that Meltzer was referring to, but it became very apparent to me, you know, three, four, five, six months later, that whatever politics might have influenced what you just described, we're, we're still there three, four, five months later. Of course, Dusty was a big draw, you know, across all ethnicities and nationalities and socioeconomic backgrounds and he finds himself in the corner of Ron Simmons against Lex Luger at Halloween Havoc for the world title. You're there. Of course, did you and dusty, you know, in your friendship ever have a conversation about what an African-American world champion might mean to business? No, we never really had those types of conversations. You know, when we talked about business, um, it was more psychology, I think than anything else. Uh, but certainly we never got into that type of a conversation about the politics of it or the significance of, you know, a Ron Simmons being the first African-American, you know, heavyweight champion. That wasn't the type of conversation that Dusty and I got into. It really was more, I don't want to say superficial, but it, it, more, super, more, more superficial than that. In uh, early January of 92, Dusty finds himself back in the ring, tagging with his son, Dustin for the uh, WCW slash Japan super show. What did you know of their relationship when you were first hired on? You know, this is one of the things that I've thought about knowing that we were going to do this show and it's, it has nothing to do with the politics or, you know, Dusty in the ring, out of the ring. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. This was this is my first really major impression of Dusty as a human being, not as a character, but as a human being. I want to be careful with this because I'll I'll get weepy if I'm not careful. But when when Dusty and I when Dust when we would travel when we were on the road, the crew, and I would ride with Dusty and Janie and Doug, and we would do the shows typically at night after the shows. Um, We'd head to the, the hotel bar, and if we, you know we were all spending the night, we would sit down. We'd have a couple of beers together, and I always hung with Dusty because Dusty was funny. Dusty was always funny, and, you know, when he was around people, he would hold court. He had a great sense of humor. He could tell great stories. You know, he was he 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 had a wealth of experiences in the wrestling business and working with. You know, the, the wildest characters that any of us had ever heard of in the wrestling business that, at that time. So hanging with Dusty, and, and again, it was a privilege for me. And I knew it then. You know, I, I know it even more now, but I, I even knew it then. And one of the things that I remember about Dusty and Dustin is their affection for each other. And by that, I mean, I, I grew up in a, 
and I by no means do I want to make this sound like I grew up in a horrible family or a horrible time because that's not the case. My parents loved me. They, we grew up in a, you know, I grew up in a household that was, it was the way it was because of the conditions that they grew up in, my, my mother and my father. But there was never any real affection. You know, nobody ever told each other they loved each other. There was never any outward displays of affection. Nobody hugged each other, you know, saying goodnight. None of that. It was a very, um, it was almost, um, it's almost like a military kind of environment. You know, there was love there. Don't get me wrong. I, I really want to be careful about that, but it was just really different. And I'd never seen at that, even at that point now, now, now I'm in my thirties. Right. And, and I had my own children and I was very affectionate with them, but they were very young and I was already aware, you know, my kids were so young. I was thinking, man, I don't want to, I don't want to raise my kids the same way I was raised in terms of, you know, showing affection and telling them I love them, but I wasn't really comfortable with it either. You know, I've never been comfortable you know, getting compliments or giving compliments. I've never been comfortable showing emotion to people unless it was anger at that point. And I remember I would be sitting at the bar, you know, with Dusty and Janie and Doug and, you know, whoever else was hanging around with us at the time. And I would see Dustin come into the bar and Dustin never hung around. You know, he would come in, he would say hello, he might have a beer and hang out for a few minutes. But the affection, this just the genuine affection between Dusty and Dustin really stood out to me. And I remember I was I, I remember it almost I don't remember where we were. I think we were somewhere in Florida. But I remember one night sitting at a bar. I can picture the bar, I just can't picture where it was. And sitting there, and when I, I was sitting right next to Dusty. And I saw Dustin and Dusty give each other a big hug. And I heard Dusty say, I love you, son. I went, wow. I mean, right in front of everybody. So we could all hear it. And that left such a big impression on me. And at that point, it kind of made me realize how important it is and it was to express that emotion to my own children, whether I'm in public or not. And it, it really, really stood out to me. And when I think about Dusty Rhodes, that's the moment that I think about. Forget about all the great things he did in the wrestling business because there's too many of them to really talk about. But for me, that was the one moment that, in my mind at least, defines Dusty Rhodes. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, not a lot of us, myself included, got to see that. It feels weird to sort of transition and talk about wrestling, but, uh, that's what we're doing. Um, Meltzer wrote in the January 92 observer on the 20th. In fact, that Jim Hurd had resigned after losing what he called a him or me struggle with dusty behind the scenes. Can you speak to dusty's problems with Jim Hurd? And obviously dusty comes out on top here. Any insight on any of that? You know, I was so peripherally aware of it. I mean, literally, I was like on the outside looking in. Um, there's just, you know, I just, I was so far out of that kind of loop. I was aware of it. Um, my impression from my point of view, and again, not knowing the real dynamics of the politics at that point, to me, it almost seemed like Jim, Jim heard. Jim Hurd's issue is about Ric Flair. 
more than dusty roads um, from what I can recall. But again, I, I, I was, you know, I was so far out of the loop and looking in through the window from a distance that it, I don't really have a good understanding of what really went down during that time. Do you know what Dusty's like week looked like as a booker? You know, it's such a different time in the wrestling business when he was tasked with sort of being the creative head of creative, if you will, for WCW, what did that look like? You know, from my perspective, I remember, you know, Dusty had his office and, uh, you know, he had his, he had his group, you know, Janie Engel was his, she was his go-to. I mean, she, she kind of protected him. She kept people out of the, you know, she, you, you couldn't get through Janie unless Dusty wanted you to. Um, she, she really was a good kind of gatekeeper from a lot of the boys and a lot of the distractions and, and people trying to influence the creative process. She, she was a great gatekeeper. Um, Grizzly Smith was somebody that, um, Dusty had within his group. I think he confided or, or talk to Grizz, you know, when it came to psychology and he'd, he'd run ideas by Grizz. I think he valued Grizz's opinion because Grizz had such a, a wealth of experience, you know, old school type of experience. And is, you know, Dusty was very, very, very progressive. I mean, Dusty was not, forget about progressive. He was ahead of his time, light years ahead of his time, but he still valued, you know, a traditional perspective uh, on the creative process. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, Grizz was there. Um, and my, you know, my ability to interact with Dusty and see what his week was like was typically him, you know, working on the shows, you know, he had the, you know, he worked on the syndicated shows. He worked on the TBS shows Uh, at the time we had TBS Saturday night. We had main event on Sunday and then we had, um, what was it called? Uh, WCW Pro, uh, which was the syndicated show. And I think we had a WCW main event syndicated show. So there was, you know, he was putting together four or five shows all at the same time with the emphasis being on the TBS show because that was the flagship show. And I would see him, you know, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he was, he was writing and occasionally, you know, he'd bring me in and, and, and share something with me, something that I was a part of or or something he wanted me to do. Um, he might share it with me. But I didn't really see a lot of Dusty until it was time to go do the shows. No, that makes sense. Let's talk about um, him on air because a lot of people remember Dusty and a lot of our younger listeners remember Dusty more as a commentator. What did you think of Dusty as a color commentator? I thought he was great. You know, Dusty's passion for the business and his ability. I mean, it's one of the things that made him such a great character is he believed it. You know, he was a method actor. He was a method wrestler. He was a method performer. I mean, once the red light went on and whether he was the American dream, Dusty Rhodes in the ring or whether he was Dusty Rhodes, you know, the the color commentator, um, he lived in that moment. He wasn't. And, and I don't want to be negative here, but, you know, so many announcers today 
are caught up trying to be Jim Ross, or they're caught up trying to be a Joey Styles, or they're caught up trying to be this guy, or they're they're trying to be something that they're not, right? Uh, naturally, and and the really great announcers are the ones, in my opinion at least, that believe so much in what they're doing that they forget that they're announcers and they're just the biggest fans with the best seat creating that emotion and communicating what's going on in a way uh, that makes it believable. And Dusty was the best at that. Meltzer was pretty critical of Dusty on commentary. I mean, specifically he wrote in 92 that he really just came to unprepared and just faked his way through the shows, quote unquote, doing charming jive to get himself over at the expense of everyone else. Is that a fair criticism? I mean, it does feel like it's sort of old school to just sort of call it in the ring and be unprepared, be organic and be natural. Do you think that's a a fair criticism of Dusty as a commentator? Uh, in the spirit of not wanting to be negative, I'm going to stick to not being negative, uh, and refrain from criticizing that particular comment from Meltzer. Sure. And in fairness to Dave, you know, I'd, I'd have to, I'd like to see an example of what he's talking about, mm-hmm. you know, as a general statement, I think that's very unfair as a general statement, guys like, you know, Jesse, the body Ventura who got himself over in a big way and was a great color commentator in the WWF as well as WCW, uh, didn't come and didn't prepare. And for the most part, was able to find that balance between getting himself over and getting his character over, which enabled him to get the talent over. Because let's face it, if your call a commentator isn't over, nothing your call a commentator is going to say is going to get the talent over. There's a difference between play-by-play and color. Play-by-play commentators are traffic cops. They're there to describe the action to people as if they couldn't see. That's a really good play-by-play person. A really good play-by-play person. Now, this is my opinion, by the way. I'm, people may disagree with me, and that's fine. Don't give two shits. Mm. However, in my opinion, a good play-by-play guy is about as middle of the road as they can be, but, but with passion and detail can paint a picture of physically what's going on inside of the ring in a way that someone who is blind – could imagine it and see it in their minds. That to me is a good play-by-play person. Not only you have to be able to describe the action in real time, but do it in a way that's passionate and creates emotion. A color commentator, on the other hand, which is why they call it color, is to add dimension, to bring the characters into it, to to bring the the heel and the babyface aspect of what's actually happening in the ring to life. And sometimes in order to do that, you have to be kind of larger than life yourself. You have to be an over-the-top character to be effective at it. And Dusty was. Now, to, to, to Belzer's point, did sometimes he go too far getting himself over to help get the talent over? Maybe he did. I don't know. I'd like to see an example of, of what Meltzer was referring to, but I'm telling you from, you know, a macro perspective, you know, uh, you know, stepping back and looking at it from a distance, I think Dusty was great at what he did. Let's talk about Bill Watts coming in because Watts comes in in 92, I believe. How did Dusty take the news 
that Turner feels like they need to bring in a Bill Watts. Did, did Watts and Dusty get along? By the time Watts came in, I had gotten a little bit closer to Dusty and perhaps the inner circle of the, the political machinations within WCW. Um, my sense was Dusty was uncomfortable with Watts. I didn't know why we didn't talk about it. He didn't bury Watts to me or anything like that. Uh, I think perhaps Dusty was a little disappointed that he didn't get the nod right. uh, for that position. I think that, and you know, this is hard to talk about cause we're all friends now, you know, but there was tension between Ross and, and Dusty. There was conflict there on a fairly regular basis that I was aware of. And I think the fact that Ross was Jim's guy uh, and vice versa probably was disconcerting to, to, to Dusty. I know it was not probably, I know it was. Um, I think, I think Dusty really felt the pressure there and was a little bit concerned. So once Bill's in, I mean, do they get along? Is there still a, a power struggle? Uh, what changes for Dusty while Watts is there? Again, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a part of, you know, I was still the third string announcer. I'd show up on, you know, Sunday nights. I'd do my shit on Monday and Tuesday, and I'd go home Wednesday morning. So I wasn't close enough to it. Now, I had, like I said, I'd become a little closer to Dusty by that point. Um, the only thing I can tell you is that, from the perspective I had at that time, I could tell that Dusty was feeling the pressure. He he wasn't his jovial self. He wasn't, he wasn't as light, you know, and, and funny. And he didn't seem to enjoy what he was doing quite as much as he did prior to Watts coming in. And I think that was because of the, the political pressure. And look, Watts was a dick. Um, he, he kept everybody off balance. You know, he, 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 he likes to maintain his power by bullying and keeping people insecure and keeping them off balance. So, and Dusty was one of them. Um, that's what I do remember. And, you know, it's specifically, it was probably in the fall, I guess, of what was it? 92 when Watts came in. Yeah. Probably because Dusty and I had planned uh, a deer hunting trip in Wyoming. Um, and, you know, when you plan a trip like that, you have to apply for your licenses, you know, well in advance because you're out of state. So we had to put in for our licenses, I think, in January and February. And it was Dusty and I and Dustin, uh, Doug Dillinger, my wife, were all going to meet out in Wyoming and, and do some mule deer hunting. And I remember Dusty, he, he was scared to death to take the time off. You know, it, it's when you're, when you're paranoid and, and rightfully so, because things were so political and, and disturbed, uh, Dusty was really conflicted as to whether or not he, he should even go on that trip because he was, he was afraid to be gone for 10 days, even though he had put in for his vacation, as did I. You know, we all did what we were supposed to do uh, to get the time off, according to the Turner playbook. 
but when it came time, Dusty was really, he was second guessing himself because he just didn't really trust what was going to happen while he was gone politically. Man, what a crazy business. Come late 92, Meltzer sort of freestyling in the observer that WCW was very likely going to lowball Dusty's contract renewal and Dusty was going to start putting out feelers to do indie shots. Of course, he wound up sticking around. But did you have any insight into what contract negotiations were like with Turner during this era? Not Dusty specifically, but just who Dusty might have been dealing with, what the process was like. Just speak to that climate at the time. Oh, yeah. My contract was, you know, I was in the middle of my contract, so I wasn't anywhere near negotiations um, having to deal with that. So, you know, I, I don't have a firsthand knowledge. I can tell you that there was a lot of uneasiness with talent across the board, whether you were a wrestler, because uh, Watts was going to people and trying to renegotiate existing contracts and kind of bullying and intimidating and threatening and what whatnot, uh, trying to get um, guys to accept less money. Um, than they were contracted to make. Um, and I think Dusty was in that same ballpark. Uh, Dusty never shared any of that with me. You right. know, he kept his shit to himself. Uh, he never spoke openly about his negotiations or discussions. You know, the only thing I you know recall is there were times in, in our mutual frustration with the way things were because, you know, with Watts there, you know, now heading well into 92, I was – I was looking for the door. You know, I, I didn't think there was any chance in hell I was going to survive a Bill Watts um, reign of, of management. So rather than wait around waiting for the axe to fall, I was looking for a way out, to be honest. Um, and Dusty and I would talk about that type of thing occasionally. And Dusty, you know, he, he used to tell me early on, he said, I'll just call Vince, you know, if I need, you know, if it comes down to it. You know, Vince and I still have a good relationship. I can pick up the phone and, or as he referred to him, I'll just call the old man. That's and awesome. That'll be that. So I, I never heard from Dusty or anybody else that he was thinking about going on independence. But Dusty did tell me that, you know, shit hit the fan. He'd just pick up the phone and call Vince. Of course, in early 93, Watts is out, and that creates an opportunity for someone to step up. And that someone was you. Did you have any conversations with Dusty when you're trying to sort of move up the company here and vie for that top spot? A few. And Dusty was very supportive. You know, it was, look, it, it was made clear. And, you know, one of the reasons I think Dusty was supportive is because Bill Shaw made it really clear to everybody in a company meeting. They were going to hire an executive producer. They did not want to hire any more wrestling people. I mean, Bill Watts and the disaster that he was and the shambles that he left the company in, uh, after, after having been fired, um, everybody knew that there was going to be an abrupt change and it might be the last one. In fact, Bill Shaw made that very clear, uh, that this was the last effort to try to pull WCW, you know, up off the ground. And Bill made it very clear that they're not going to hire another wrestling person, that they were going to hire a TV person. And Dusty was a wrestling person. He was a good TV person. Dusty had a great mind for television. Dusty was far more creative and smart, way, way better prepared, creatively speaking, for that role than I was from a wrestling perspective. But Dusty didn't have the broader experience in the television industry that I did, you know, Dusty came up as a wrestler in the wrestling business and a booker. Um, 
he didn't have he didn't understand syndication quite the way you know others did he didn't really understand the paper the business of the pay-per-view business he didn't really understand the the business of the advertising business of the television business the, the, the way that you know i did or others did so dusty knew he wasn't going to get the nod there was it wasn't like we were competing right and since we weren't competing he was very supportive of me you know he not 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 me more than tony i guess or or anybody else but he was you know he was a cheerleader to a to a large degree at least to me you know privately i don't know what he what he did internally you know but i know privately to me he was very supportive what role was ole anderson handling for you once you sort of get the top spot i mean what was his relationship with dusty is what i'm driving at of course ole had run georgia for years and then later dusty had ran jcp so these guys have a history how did they coexist on your watch in 93? Well, it wasn't really under my watch in the beginning. That's, you know, people tend to forget that or, or don't understand it um, to begin with. But when, when I get made executive producer, my scope of influence was only over the physical television product, lighting, audio, venue locations, graphics, staff, you know, to, to accomplish all of the above, I had nothing to do with wrestling operations. I had nothing to do with hiring or firing wrestling talent. I had nothing to do with booking. I had nothing to do with arenas or, or where we were touring or where we weren't touring. That was all under Bob Dew and a guy by the name of Don Sandifer, who was kind of like the head of arenas and touring at the time. And Oli was the wrestling operations guy. And he and Dusty kind of worked together. My, my take at that point was, cause again, it wasn't my, the company was literally split in two different de- departments. So I had my world, the world you're just describing with Oli and Dusty and Bob Dew and Don Sandifer were for the most part an entirely separate world that I didn't really get too involved in, at least not initially. Um, and, you know, looking back at it now, you know, Dusty, Dusty was the creative guy. Oli had some input in creative, but Oli was really the, the talent management, I guess. Right. Personality. Uh, negotiating contracts and developing new talent, scouting for new talent, that type of thing. There you go. So you wrote in your book that Dusty did a better job as Booker than Ole had, but you still didn't feel like the stories for WCW had the right feel or the one you were looking for. And you sort of summed up in your book that you thought wrestlers were able to think maybe a week or a month at a time, but didn't really understand long-term character development and story arcs. So you wrote that you sort of looked to Hollywood writers you'd met at MGM and Disney, and you sort of forced a couple of these guys to work with dusty or forced this process on dusty, where he's going to work with two guys who have a ton of experience writing 13 week episodic television series. Talk us through the thinking here, how Dusty reacted to it, and the results. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. So there were a couple dynamics playing here. You know, one was that 
as the executive producer who was in charge of producing, physically producing the show and all the things that went along with that. Um, one of my biggest concerns early on is our shows look like shit. I mean, we couldn't draw flies if we, you know, had horses shit in the arena before we got there. I mean, it was horrible. We would go to these, you know, we'd produce our syndicated shows, um, you know, in different arenas around, you know, Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and, you know, all the places we could drive to, you know, 150, 200-mile radius of Atlanta, 300-mile radius of Atlanta. And WCW had done such a piss-poor job of booking those territories and promoting those territories or those markets for such a long time that you couldn't give tickets away. You'd show up on a Monday night or a Tuesday night to shoot TV, and you may have 150 or 200 people show up in, in a venue that would hold five or 6,000. And the people that did show up <laughs> didn't really care. You know, it was a little bit, and I say this half jokingly, but not really, maybe not half, maybe only a quarter jokingly. It's like the WCW Saturday night audience that would show up, you know, when we taped there at, at the. Uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of the venue there. Center and, stage. Uh, center stage. Yes, thank you. Um, you know, half of them were winos. <laughs> They'd be sitting there with a brown paper bag, you know, <laughs> drinking wine, falling asleep halfway through the show. You'd have to wake them up when it was over and send them home. And th that was a real problem with a lot of our syndicated shows. So that you know, as a result of that, we had to turn the lights way down so you you couldn't see the empty seats, and everything just looked like shit. So it was one of the reasons why I moved the shows and the production to Disney MGM Studios because I knew at the very least we could turn up the lights. At the very least, we would have sober, live, warm bodies in those seats. And, yes, they, I knew they weren't going to be wrestling fans, and I knew we would have an issue there, but at least they weren't drunk, and at least I could turn up the lights. And it would look good because it's television. That's what advertisers see. That's what potential sponsors see. And, you know, I knew I had to serve not only the wrestling fans, the audience, the hardcore fans, but I also had to find a way to make our product appealing to advertisers. Because if we couldn't sell advertising within the show, there was no reason for the show to exist. So I made the commitment to move to Disney, and Dusty was tremendously supportive of that. In a period in time, you know, people don't talk about it too much because it was really only the upper management, WCW, that was involved in it. But there was a real – it was a civil war. You know, half the company – you know, half the management was really for the Disney move and half of it wasn't. Um, it was a fight. And it was probably one of the more critical fights I had at that time early on. And Dusty was right he, – he was right behind me in that. Now, as a result of having to shoot 13 weeks of episode or 13 weeks of television at a time because we were going down to Disney MGM Studios and we would go down there for a week and we crank out three or four shows a day. So when you have to shoot that many shows in that short period of time, you have to have – they have to be planned out. You have to have a storyline. You have to have an arc. You have to have what they call a Bible, uh, a storyline Bible, 
to, to reference from in order to produce all of that television. You no longer had the luxury, which so many people in the South did, you know, the Jerry Jarrett's and, you know, the, the, the Eddie Graham's and, and all the guys that, you know, promoted down in Florida, Ole Anderson, Dusty Rose, who the Crockett's, they all had the luxury because it really was the luxury of a weekly territory because you could go out there and you could, you know, book your shit. You could see how the crowd reacted to it and then decide what you're going to do next week. You, you probably had a pretty good idea, but at least you had the opportunity to shift on the fly in a weekly territory. Well, we were no longer a weekly territory. And so many of the people that were WCW, even when I got there were leftovers or remnants or carryovers, however you want to refer to them without disparaging them, they were people that had come along with the the Crockett organization. So many of them. Bill Jim Barnett, you know, Gary Juster, all those guys were all part of that original NWA weekly territory culture. So when we made this giant transition to Disney MGM Studios and we now had to look at our television from a storytelling point of view Three months at a time, instead of one week at a time, everything changed. And it was overwhelming for for everybody, you know, Dusty included. And I knew that the only way it was going to be, or I believed, I should say, the only way I thought it was ever going to work is if I could take Dusty's ideas, because Dusty's ideas were amazing. I mean, he, he had... The vision that he had, if he would have been able to achieve 20% of the vision that he had and execute on it, it would have been amazing. But he didn't have the support underneath him, and he was a little stubborn, like a lot of people are. And it was he kind of wanted to do everything himself. Right. That was, you know, kind of a fatal flaw when it when it came to his approach to writing TV. Is he just he wanted to do it all himself, and because he saw it in his head and he wanted to try to execute it the way he saw it. He didn't want somebody else executing it the way they thought he saw it. It's, it's not really a criticism because so many people are like that, especially really, really creative people. But in this case, it was a flaw. So I brought two writers in from Hollywood that I knew of that were really good at structure. They didn't know fuck all about wrestling and I didn't want them to. I didn't want him to try to understand wrestling. I didn't want him to get into the creative, but what I wanted them to do is take Dusty's creative and break it down so that it would play out over the course of 13 weeks as opposed to, oh, I got this really good idea. This guy's going to do this. This guy's going to do this. We're going to have this great finish, and then we'll figure it out next week. <laughs> that, that wasn't going to work. So that was the reason behind bringing the writers in is to just to create some structure and um, the ability to plan, quite frankly, and, and the detail that went along with it so that we could successfully shoot 13 weeks of television within four or five days. Well, that's a good story, man. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize all that you had to do there, but uh, and I don't know that I would have even thought we would have touched on it here in such detail, but. That's why people listen to 83 weeks and hopefully you've, uh, hit the subscribe button and told your friends about us. Let's keep rolling here. Clash of the champions from January of 94. It was Dusty's last show as Booker. Uh, that's all according to the observer that had to be a pretty hard conversation to have. What do you remember about that? <sighs> yeah, um, I think Dusty saw it coming. 
Dusty was so he was so cool about it. And and I don't know if it's because he and I were friends. I don't know if it was because he and I or not he and I. I don't know if it's because he could see the handwriting on the wall. Right. Probably well in advance of that. But he, he handled it like a man. He he handled it like a man. Meltzer wrote that uh, Dusty wasn't even at the building for Spring Stampede '94, writing. So his front office power appears to be nil. Were there hard feelings with you and Dusty at this point? And what was Dusty's role here in the spring of '94? I don't think there was. There was no hard feel. I, I, maybe hurt feelings. Right. I, I, you know. I mean. He's a, he was a human being, so of course, and, and probably especially because we were friends, and it that made it a little more complicated. But he he didn't sell it, you know. He I had to keep saying it, but he took it like a man, right? And I also think Dusty, in his mind, if I reflect on it now. Probably went, yeah, this is temporary. <laughs> sure. 404-941-06439. They'll be calling me back again. Said, how about that? <laughs> I still remember his phone number. <laughs> um, you know, because that's the way it went. You know, in WCW at the time, it was kind of like a revolving door, but nobody ever really left. You just kind of got cycled through and you went to the back of the line. And then before you knew it, you were in the front of the line again. And I think probably in Dusty's mind, because he had confidence in himself, he knew that there was no heat between he and I. You know, the choices I was making, the decisions I was making were kind of mandated by the direction we needed to go in and the pressures we were under. Um, I don't think he took it personally. If he did, he never sold it to me that way. And I I think more than anything, he probably just went, great, I'll just lay back here in the weeds and they'll be calling me back here shortly. Well, they did call back. Dusty wound up in the ring that August, teaming with his son, Dustin, to take on Terry Funk and Buckhouse Buck. Uh, he did a great job drawing some ratings for TBS there. And that leads us to fall brawl 94, another war games here with Dusty Rhodes on one side and Arn Anderson on the other. That feels like old times, but the uh, house show from October 28th in Tampa of that year only drew like 600 fans. It's Terry Funk's last stand. It'll be his last shot with WCW for a while. And Dusty is tagging with his son, Dustin, to take on both Funk and Arn Anderson. But they only draw 600 fans in the old stomping grounds of the American Dream, Tampa. Is that a testament to just the business being, especially WCW's house show business? I mean, it's not... I don't think an indictment on the drawing power of a dusty Rhodes or a Terry Funk WCW's house show business in fall of 94 fucking awful, right? It was horrible. And it wasn't a reflection on dusty or Terry Funk or anybody else. It was, or anybody on the roster. I mean, that was really a transitional period for us. And as I've stated, and probably more times than anybody wants to hear me state again, the, the WCW house show business, the arena touring model, and the people that oversaw it were so ill-equipped, had no idea what they were doing. It, 
It was horrible. I'll just let it go at that. I don't want to be negative. I don't want to pick on anybody on this show. It was as shitty as it could possibly be. So that, you know, that turnout was not a reflection of the talent. It was a reflection of the way the audience felt about the WCW product in general and the piss poor way that house shows in, a, in, in the arena touring business was being managed, you know, leading up to that point and even afterwards. Let's get to February 95. This should be fun. You start teaming with Dusty to call some WCW Pro. How does that come about? I don't know. Just felt right. I knew we could have fun. Right. I, look, you've worked with me long enough now. You've probably heard me say this enough times. I, I, I firmly believed, and still do to this day, that if you work hard, you have to work hard. No matter what it is you want to be successful at, you there's no way around it. You have to work hard, but I also believe it has to be fun. Right. And if you can find a way to combine hard work with joy and and fun, the end result will be successful. Eight times out of ten, as long as you work hard enough and you have enough fun working hard enough, you're you're almost destined to be successful. And I knew that I could have fun with Dusty Rose. And I knew that, you know, I knew I was good, you know, adequate. I won't say I was good. I wasn't as good as Tony Schiavone. Um, I certainly wasn't as good as Jim Ross, but I was pretty good. I, I was a good, I was a good C squatter. I was a good six and a half or seven on a scale of 10. But with Dusty and his charisma and his personality, I knew that the combination of, I knew he could make up for it. And I knew the combination of us could be an eight or nine out of 10. Any fun dusty commentary stories you've got from your time working with him on pro? I, you know, I really don't, you know, there's, there's things, you know, I don't remember jokes. You know, people tell me a joke, it could be the funniest fucking joke I've ever heard. And I could double up, you know, with cramps and, you know, piss myself laughing and 48 hours later, I won't remember the joke. Right. Um, I never remember the names of movies 20 minutes after I leave the movie. I can't remember the name of the movie. Um, but there's certain things I do remember well, but you know, stories and and jokes and that type of thing aren't one of them. So I, unfortunately I don't really have any in late March, Dustin was fired over the King of the road match that happened at uncensored. And we'll talk about that another time, but I do want to address the rumors coming out of the match as to whether or not Justy Dusty's job was in jeopardy. Allegedly he was replaced on main event by Bobby Heenan at the very last minute. And he was pretty upset about Dustin's firing. What do you remember about this time when the uncensored match situation happens? And we'll talk about the fallout later with regards to everybody else. But what was it like here dealing with Dusty on the heels of having to make a decision like that? Well, you've, you know, two different kind of issues in one question there. Um, as, As it relates to Dustin, that was a really tough decision for me too, because I was friends with Dustin. I, you know, I, Dustin and Dusty and I and my wife, you know, went deer hunting together. I mean, we're friends, and to me, that means a lot. You know, I don't, I don't take that lightly. Uh, I don't have that many, <laughs> so, you know, it was really hard for me uh, to do what I had to do. But I explained it to to Dustin. And it's still, you know, I can't, I don't want to speak for him and he may remember it or have different feelings about it, um, than, than I thought he did at the time. But, you know, he knew, um, he, he took it, 
much like Dusty, he took it like a man, um, and he moved on. And I, I remember having the conversation with Dusty, and at least, you know, to me, in our discussions, it, you know, it was not easy, but it wasn't hostile. It wasn't, there was no anger, there were no threats or accusations or anything of that. It, you know, it was an uncomfortable, you know, tense conversation, but I, I had to do what I had to do. And I think Dusty reluctantly, incredibly reluctantly, deep down inside knew that. But still, it was his son. Of course it hurt him. Of course he was upset. Of course Dustin was upset. I was upset. It was fucked up. It was what it was. Did you think uh, Dusty was going to walk over this, or did you have confidence that cooler heads would prevail? No, I didn't think he would walk over it. It wasn't like that. He, he, he never, he never said or did anything that would have suggested that that was even a thought in his mind. He was hurt. His feelings were hurt. Right. That's all. Uh, of course, Dusty winds up sticking around and you guys put him in the WCW hall of fame at Slambury 95. Did Dusty care about achievements like that? I think so. I mean, I. I can't speak for him. You know, I, I think he was happy. You know, there were a lot of people that, you know, we were bringing people in that Dusty, you know, there were Dusty's peers. Um, and it elevated Dusty, much like it would anybody that gets inducted to any Hall of Fame. I think anytime your peers acknowledge you for your effort and your work and your accomplishments, how, how does it not make you feel good? How does it not feel important to you. Um, and, and Dusty wasn't any different than anybody else in that regard. So I, I think it did. I think it made him happy. I, I remember seeing him, you know, uh, that night. And I think I even hung out with him for a little while and we had a couple beers with Andre the giant. And, uh, I think that was the one, um, if I'm not mistaken, I get him mixed up, but, um, he, he was a happy guy. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the gold dust character. Do you remember having a conversation with dusty when Dustin shows up on WWF TV with this pretty controversial character at the time? Did not. Uh, in September of 95, dusty starts doing commentary on WCW Saturday night. And that's sort of the flagship show. And, uh, I think some of, you know, my favorite wrestling memories come from dusty on WCW Saturday night commentary. And if you're listening to this and you maybe miss some of that, you got to go out of your way to find it online. Some of that stuff is not posted on the WWE network yet, but, uh, it's pretty awesome. Eventually he's replaced there though, by Lee Marshall. Uh, and that happens in March of 96. Why the hokey pokey with dusty on commentary? He had a higher use somewhere else, or was it just time for a change? I wanted to try Lee. Um, I had worked with Lee in AWA, you know, Lee had a tremendous voice. He was a radio announcer for the LA Dodgers. Um, he worked with Vince Scully, you know, he had a tremendous kind of legacy, I guess, if you will, or, or a resume in, as a broadcaster. And again, you have to remember what my mission was back then. My mission was to try to change the perception of the WCW product in the eyes of advertisers. 
I was more concerned about advertisers and sponsors than I was with wrestling fans. So I had to make some tough decisions accordingly. And while Dusty was the guy, you know, w- with the TBS audience, you know, the NWA audience, the Florida, you know, Georgia Championship Wrestling audience, um, he, he was the guy uh, for that regional market. But I was trying desperately to get the attention and the acceptance of more mainstream, you know, more national advertisers. So my announce changes had a lot more to do with that than anything else. Let's talk a little bit about, um, Dusty's pay-per-view commentary. You know, I, I know you said you don't really remember any of the jokes and I get that, but I think a lot of people sort of point to like JR's call at King of the ring, 1998 as maybe one of his most iconic or, you know, they could probably say Royal Rumble 92 for Bobby Heenan. Is there a show or a pay-per-view or a moment in Dusty's commentary that really stands out to you as being special? I, you know, I, I can't really pin it down. I, I really can't. Let's talk about something I know you can pin down, and that's the NWO parody of the Four Horsemen. Dusty's pretty old school, and of course he had his rounds with Ric Flair and the Four Horsemen during the mid-80s. What did he think of the NWO mocking the horseman. Dusty was torn about that. I mean, Dusty was really, like I said earlier, he was extremely progressive. He was very supportive of things that most people weren't. Most of the things that I was trying to do at that time. Um, he certainly saw the handwriting on the wall with the NWO and was very supportive of all of that. But still that move in mocking the four horsemen, I mean, across the line in retrospect, I've talked about this with you. The first time I ever did a podcast with you, Ric Flair's podcast. Um, we talked about this at length, um, that, that crossed the line. And I think dusty wreck dusty was uncomfortable with it. He didn't like it. He didn't bust my balls for it. You know, he didn't chastise me for it, but he, I could tell he was, disappointed um that it went as far as it did it's a pretty weird deal here when you guys decide to uh turn dusty heel have him join the nwo it sold out 98 he does this when he attacks larry zabisco during larry's match with scott hall and this is a pretty big deal that i think maybe gets glossed over because at the time dusty'd really been a baby face since like 1974 And Meltzer wrote that this really had a dual purpose because you're trying to create a storyline reason to have Dusty come off of WCW Saturday night and allow Scott Hudson and Mike Tanay to start doing it. And this actually gives you a color commentator for the NWO show, which according to the rumor and innuendo was still planned at this point. Is that accurate? Is that the reason Dusty was turning heel here? No, the reason, I mean, Dusty turned heel, we were trying to shock people. The, 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 the tone and the tenor that we were trying to create, I was trying to create at that time was that WCW was going to just be decimated and that it really was going, you know, NWO was really going to take over. I wanted to beat WCW down to the point where that it was almost hopeless so that when staying or flair, or whoever it was going to be, you know, in, in almost insurmountable odds 
was able to somehow come back and rally against the NWO. That was the general kind of theme that I was trying to create. And a guy like Dusty turning was kind of like, oh, my God, there's no hope. If Dusty Rhodes is turning NWO, there's no hope for anybody. That That's what that was. There was no, you know, underlying, you know, reasons. There was no three-part story as to why I was doing it. It was a very simple, we were trying to create the perception that WCW was all but dead. And to have a guy like Dusty Rhodes turn on WCW was about as bad as it could get. You know, Hogan turning on WCW, how bad is that? He'd only been there for a year and a half or whatever it was, and he was from the WWF. Kind of made sense, right? Hall and Nash were, yeah, they kind of came in pissed off at WCW. But to have a loyalist like Dusty Rhodes piss all over the graves of WCW, that's a big moment. That's what that moment was. There was no other reasons. I wasn't trying to pave the way for anybody else or <laughs> Mike Tanay or whatever, whatever that supposed rumor and innuendo was. It doesn't make any sense to me. How did Dusty like being a bad guy? I think he liked it. Dusty, look, Dusty liked being in the limelight. Dusty could be, Dusty's a great heel. Dusty was a great heel. He's a b greater baby face, but he liked, he liked the energy, man. The, the, and especially at that time, the NWO was hot. He loved Scott Hall. You know, there's a good relationship between the two of them there. Um, and it, it allowed Dusty to feel that. That heat again, the heat is life, man. If you're a wrestler, if you're a performer, I can't speak as a wrestler. I'm not a wrestler. I never was. But as a performer in the ring, that heat to me is just as rewarding as people, as a standing ovation. It's the same thing. And I think for Dusty to be able to get out, especially after, you know, all the circumstance, you know, the, the tumult and all the back and forth and the Bill Watts and the Eric Bischoff and all the stuff that was going on for Dusty to be, you know, have that moment in the ring where most of the guys that were at Dusty's level will always tell you that, you know, the, being in that ring and feeling that is the most alive they feel uh, and, the, and the most peace that they, they feel. So for Dusty to get back in there and get that heat, psh, kidding me? How do you think he felt? Dusty starts managing Scott Hall on TV after this. What was their relationship like? I think it was pretty good. You know, I wasn't close enough to either one of them on a personal level to, to talk about their relationships with each other. Dusty kept his stuff to himself. You know, Dusty never buried anybody to me. Uh, he had opinions and he would express them, but, you know, he, he never really went into a lot of detail. You know, Scott being a Florida boy, Dusty being a Florida boy. You know, Dusty was well aware of, you know, how Scott came up, you know, in Florida and AWA. I think Dusty had a lot of respect for Scott. And Scott's a tremendous talent. He was then. Um, and I think Dusty had a ton of respect for him. I think that from my recollection, you know, the relationship was pretty good. It probably was strained from time to time because Scott could be a jackass. Um, but I know Scott had a ton of respect for Dusty. Still does to this day. And did then, you know, before Dusty passed. Scott loved Dusty Rose. Keeping up with the dirt sheets here in 98 was pretty interesting. There were rumors here in April of 98 that Dusty's on his way out. But in May of 98, Nash is teaming with Dusty in street clothes to beat the public enemy on Thunder 
And the following month in early June, you have a talent meeting where you sort of announced to everyone that dusty is going to have a much bigger role in the booking committee. How does that come about in June of 98? You just described it. I had a talent meeting. I said, dusty's going to have a bigger role and he did. That's how it came about. Okay. Thanks for that. I appreciate all the detail. I guess the question, no, but, I, but I'm not busting your balls, but I don't understand the question. Why, but, why, why did you switch to dusty? I didn't switch to dusty. I just wanted dusty to have a, a bigger voice. I we, look by 98. I knew we, we needed some help by 98. Um, I was buried, you know, fighting a fight that kind of distracted me from creative, um, within, within the company that we've talked about before. I don't need to get into it here. I knew I needed help on the team and I had confidence in dusty. Uh, I still, you know, D dusty would come in and out. I had problems with dusty from time to time because he could be stubborn. He did like to do everything himself. He didn't necessarily like to collaborate as much as we needed collaboration because of the nature of the way we were producing TV and the volume of TV that we were producing and the level at which we were producing it. And, and dusty's style, um, didn't always fit, but that didn't mean that I didn't respect dusty and, and value his input. So that was the reason why I held a talent meeting and announced to everybody that he was going to have more input. Got it. Yeah. Uh, before the, uh, December 14th nitro, you hold a meeting again, another one of these talent meetings, just, you know, a handful of months later saying that. Nash and DDP are going to join you and Kevin Sullivan. And of course, dusty Rhodes on the booking committee. How did that group work together? It feels like Kevin Sullivan and dusty Rhodes probably got along. Great. Of course, we know that DDP and Kevin Nash have had pretty good relationships with dusty's dusty over the years. It feels like a pretty cohesive group. Did they sort of gel together and what was dusty's relationship like with that circle? No, I mean, that, that was on paper. That was a really great team. Page absolutely adored Dusty, looked at Dusty as a mentor. We all know that now, especially um, over the last couple of years. Um, DDP, I don't think anybody looked up to Dusty more on that team than, than Page. Um, Kevin Sullivan, the only reason Kevin Sullivan was on that team is because Dusty brought him in um, earlier, a couple of years earlier. And again, they had a tremendous history going back to Florida. Uh, Dusty had a lot of confidence in in Kevin, especially Kevin's ability to kind of book heat mm -hmm. and, and find heat in a story. Um, and, and Kevin's perspective on finishes, uh, Dusty had a lot of confidence in that. So that team on paper was a great team. You know, the, the, the problem with that team is they weren't dedicated to just booking, you know, they were Kevin and, and page were performers, uh, Nash and page were performers. Sullivan was in and out. He didn't really live there full time. He's in for a couple of days and gone kind of doing it remotely, you know, and dusty wasn't, you know, he wasn't the guy that had the whole thing up. So it was the, the talent was there. Uh, I think it's probably my fault for not structuring that team better um, and more professionally and maybe requiring 
a little bit more I can't think of another word than structure, but structure out of that team uh, and accountability probably is a better way to say it. Uh, that that would be on me, but certainly the team was qualified, no doubt about it. And they got along. There was there was great chemistry in the team. I guess we should mention here that uh, Dusty being part of the NWO just sort of fades away. Uh, when Flair beats you for the presidency of WCW, Dusty is celebrating with uh, WCW's president, Ric Flair here. So that whole thing just sort of goes away with Dusty and the NWO. Let's fast forward. June of 99, Meltzer writes that Dusty's essentially doing most of the booking at this point. Did everyone just sort of start to defer to his seniority by June of 99? Is that fair to say? Oh, probably. I think more than likely what happened is Dusty's, you know, Dusty was there. He was in Atlanta and he just did the work. He probably took it upon himself more than anything else. Uh, again, because Paige was working, Nash was working, Sullivan was going back and forth and, and, and Dusty and Sullivan had their own shorthand, you know, and Dusty just did the work. He assumed the position, so to speak. In late September, Meltzer would write that the politics and power struggle was very real within WCW. And while there'd been a lot of changes in creative, it was really down to Nash, Dusty and Sullivan at this point, sort of running point on creative. Do you remember any major issues between Kevin Nash and Dusty, just creative differences that they may have had? I don't, I don't, I'm sure there were, but they, they did. Are we talking about September of 99? Yeah. Well, I was gone. <laughs> what? You know, I left September 10th of 99. So if it happened somewhere between the 1st and the 10th, I don't remember it. And if it happened after the 10th, I was fishing. Before we talk about you going fishing, um, do you remember any fun segments or angles that Dusty may have put together that we all might remember? Well, I'm sure your future father-in-law. would would have to recall flair for the gold sure i mean that that was a that was a dusty Rhodes creation and as a result your future father-in-law is engaged to your future mother-in-law yeah i don't know is that (laughs) wow that's kind of crazy it is weird (laughs) to think about that i guess no Uh, but the flair for the gold was a good was a great segment I mean, there was a lot of goods. I saw a couple of those a couple of weeks ago. I was going through the WWE network, looking at some old stuff and people send me things all the time on my uh, Twitter account. And I, I see these segments and sometimes I look back at them and go, wow, I mean, those are really, really well done, especially for a company that, you know, we didn't rehearse, we didn't block things out. We didn't have scripts. You know, and then to have, you know, a flair for the gold segment where you got Arn Anderson and Ric Flair and Wendy, Fifi, <laughs> you know, a couple other people, Barry Windham, you know, five or six other people staying, all of them, you know, interacting together. And half the time we were shooting the shit live. It wasn't like take one, take two, take 34. You know, it was you go through it one or two takes and boom, you're done. And it was really, really well done. And that was Dusty. That was Dusty's vision, man. Flair for the gold. He did his best to get Ric Flair over, despite all of the politics and the back and forth. It was two guys, you know, they 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 love to hate each other and they love to love each other, and that was Dusty's that was Dusty's deal. When I think back at some of the the creative stuff that Dusty did, that he had fun doing that. You know, that was that was Hollywood to him. You know, he loved he loved the idea of of of, of elevating 
WCW content to be more mainstream and more like Hollywood than, you know, it was heretofore. I think one of the things everybody is familiar with, you know, lately, one of his biggest influences and his ability to elevate things was his contributions at NXT. Did Dusty contribute all at the power plant? He did a little bit. You know, but that wasn't, you know, the power plant was its own animal. He, he'd spent some time down there. Jody Hamilton was his guy um, in, in terms of developing talent. But Ole had a big hand in it as well, you know, for a while. Um, but that, that wasn't Dusty's, you know, that wasn't his focus. You know, he, he was involved. He was aware. He loved to go down there. Uh, but, you know, that, that really wasn't his focus. Meltzer wrote that, um, and this is this silliness happens when you're not there. That Dusty, may- thank God, thank God, I don't have to take the abuse. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, we could really call in a third man here to take the abuse if you'd like. I mean, maybe oh, we you should want do- a third man. <laughs> you don't want a third man. Well, I'm just saying, Russo could answer this one. He could be our third man, maybe because uh, the the whole play for Russo's spot is allegedly what dusty makes a a stab at and fails to get the gig and then quits as a result, November 1st, 1999. And allegedly Russo had sort of nixed the idea for Justin's easy for me to say Dustin's new gimmick and is proposing to play off of a real life situation because once upon a time, of course, I think most people know dusty and Dustin had a bit of a falling out. But Dusty wants no part of turning that real life situation into an angle. I know you weren't there, but did you ever hear about any of this mess where, you know, Dusty winds up on the outside of WCW after all these years? Yeah, I, you know, I heard about because I was still close to Paige uh, at the time. So, of course, I heard about it. Um, I talked to Dusty a couple times after I had left, you know, very briefly. We didn't get into a lot of detail. Um, it was more just social. Hey, how are you? Everything going okay? Type of thing. But certainly, I was aware of it. It was it was disturbing to me. Um, again, just thinking about Dusty and Dustin. And I didn't know Russo at the time. I didn't know what a scumbag he really was, but I had a sense of it. Um, and I was disappointed, you know, that Dusty was put in that position. And look, we had seen. Again, I'm trying not to be negative here. I'm going to try really fucking hard. Um, But we'd seen the results of what happened to relationships when you you interject real-life situations into storylines, and they don't always end well. In fact, most of the time they don't. It's just too easy to go too far. It's too easy to take liberties with reality. And when it's, when it's real emotional reality and when it's families and it's when it's, you know, husbands and wives, as we saw, um, it often goes way too far and it gets out of hand too quickly. So I don't blame Dusty for not wanting to do it. Dusty loved Dustin, right. his family, his sons. They were the most important thing to him. So for him to be put in that position, um, to have to draw a line in the sand was unfortunate. Meltzer reported in May of 2000 that, uh, Dusty was going to be hosting a new show 
for Turner South called WCW Classics. And it was going to feature old Crockett stuff from the mid 80s. He'd do wraparounds with explanations and insight as to what was going on when he booked this or that. And it's sort of interesting that this opportunity comes to him when he's working for ECW. He had started with ECW in December of 99, and he's even started his own promotion, running shows with his own money at Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling. Did you ever see any of these WCW classics? Were you in contact with Dusty when he's working for ECW or starting his own promotion or any of that stuff? No, I wasn't. I mean, I was aware of it, but I, by that time, I was kind of trying to separate myself from wrestling as best I could. Sure. I, it, was, it was kind of like a divorce. And rather than going out to dinner with the wife you're about to divorce, you just kind of get it over with. So I, I was distancing myself from the product as best I could by about that time. Dusty finally returns to WCW on January 29th, 2001. It's an addition of nitro where Ric Flair and road warrior animal were beating up Dustin and dusty comes back to make the return and make the save. And you were noted in the observer as saying that dusty could be used effectively two or three times a year for a nostalgia pop, but he was brought back here specifically to help get Dustin over. So you're sort of uh, steering the ship here uh, with the understanding that maybe you're going to be able to buy the thing is the idea here. Let's go to what we know and let's bring in our friend dusty. No, I mean the idea, the formula, and, and I think it's a formula that is proven to be successful today. When you have, you know, someone like a dusty Rhodes or an undertaker or a sting or a Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin, um, and probably pretty soon John Cena. Um, you can bring those guys back two or three, four times a year or rock. Now rock's kind of in the stratosphere all of his own, but you know what I'm saying? Those, those, I don't want to call them nostalgia figures, but those legends, those icons, whatever you want to call them, those brands that have been around for so long that, you know, two or three generations of wrestling fans look up to them as stars. Those people you may not be able to use week in and week out effectively, but you certainly can bring them back three, four, five times a year carefully and get a tremendous amount of value out of them. And that was what my comment was meant to say. Of course, WCW's last pay-per-view was called greed. It went down on March 18th, 2001. And it's fitting, I guess that WCW's last pay-per-view has Rhodes versus flair. One last time after Dustin pinned flair, dusty pulled his pants down and gave Jeff Jarrett a stink face with his red briefs on, uh, maybe a little different than dusty's first pay-per-view, but he had to be having a good time with this. Did he not? I can't imagine he wasn't, <laughs> you know, speaking of things that we had a good time with, uh, you mentioned it earlier flair for the gold. I don't know that everybody knows this, but dusty is related to the Shockmaster, which is maybe the most iconic <laughs> moment in flair for the gold history. What do you remember about that? And dusty's reaction? Oh, uh, that was the, the, the day that time stood still. <laughs> uh, uh. You know, it's easy to laugh about. You know what's funny, though, is I see Fred Ottman running around. You know, I see him at Comic-Cons or different autograph signings, and people still remember that moment. He signed in autographs as a shockmaster because people remember that moment. As horrifying as it probably was for him, you know, when it occurred, and everybody else, including Dusty, um, 
dude's still signing autographs at 25 bucks a pop. People remember. <laughs> it's kind of fun that that was um, maybe one of the first surprises on your watch. I guess the first sort of third man. Uh, of course, over the years, you would get a little better at the swerves. Well, 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 wait a minute. That wasn't my doing. I didn't, that, that was, that was all dusty. I didn't write any of that. I was there watching it in horror. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was, I was living vicariously in pain through everybody at that time. But speaking of third man, I, you know, that's a, that's kind of a running theme, isn't it? It's always a third man. Well, I mean, there is. I mean, I guess that's probably our first, it was our first show and the third man is maybe what you're most famous for with the NWO. And, you know, we sort of joke about on Tony's show that we're like the, uh, six man tag team champions of podcasting because we've got Lois Shivani and we got to figure out like how to get your wife on here, Garrett, or maybe Russo. We need a, we need a third man here to do run-ins occasionally. Stand by. Come on, Conrad. You know who the third man is, brother. Holy shit. Ladies and gentlemen. What are you guys doing cussing on the radio like this, man? (laughs) Well, you can say whatever you want. Is this an an imposter? Is this Will Sasso? Is this Bruce Pritchard? No, this isn't Will Sasso, brother. This This is Hulk Hogan, brother. Who else would be sitting here on Clearwater Beach sucking down beers with Eric Bischoff, brother? Come on, dude. I mean, oh. come on, it's not, and I do that impersonation much better than will, because I am the real thing. Okay. Wow. Mr. Hogan. What an honor. Thank you for being on the show today, man. This is, well, uh, well, one of the reasons I wanted to be on the show was, uh, I talked with Eric during the week and he told me you guys are going to be talking about dusty Rose, American dream, baby. And dusty was just the man here in Florida had a huge influence on my life. And you know, I was the one that said, Eric, if you ever want me to come on the podcast or if you ever wanted me to talk about Dusty Rhodes, I'd love to do it. So he kind of like opened the door for me to be on the show with you guys. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for coming on, man. I, I, I'm not as prepared as I might normally be if we knew we had the greatest of all time here, but you brought it up growing up in Florida. Dusty Rhodes was sort of the man down there. What are your memories of seeing Dusty when maybe you were a younger fellow? Well, I mean, you know, it was like, Growing up, you know, when I hit, you know, junior high school and right into high school, you know, Dusty wasn't that much older than me, but he was, you know, and I, how old was Dusty when he passed away? I'm not even sure. 69. No, he has got to be a little little older than that. But anyway, I'm going to be 65 in August, but all I know is when I was in ninth and 10th grade, he was wrestling in Florida here. So he, I guess he started young, but the thing was we watched him every single week on Florida championship wrestling with Gordon Sully. And if he was not on the show, if he didn't do an interview, we were just pissed because and when I was in high school, you know, I had lunch and then I had study hall, then I had shop class, then I had PE. So the last half of the day pretty much was a waste and I didn't have to do anything. So we would either wrestle at PE or wrestle in the shop class or uh, on Wednesday afternoons, Tuesday night was wrestling in Tampa at the Armory. And I would go down there and watch Dusty Rhodes every Tuesday. And then Wednesday, right off Kennedy Boulevard on Albany Avenue, a place called the Sportatorium, where I eventually got my leg broken my first day down there. I used to sneak down to the Sportatorium 
and skip school on Wednesdays to go watch him film TV there. So he hooked me from day one when I first started watching him. And if it wasn't for Dusty Rhodes, I would have never had the courage to cross the line and start approaching the wrestlers and say, hey, brother, is there any chance maybe I could work out with you guys? Because I used to follow these guys around everywhere, from the cafeterias to the arenas and everything. But Dusty Rhodes was the reason. What was it about Dusty that had that magnetism for you? Well, you know, we had uh, the promoter, Eddie Graham, and his son was a a year ahead of me in high school, and so was Steve Kern. And uh, we had a bunch of really good wrestlers here, Bob Orton Jr. We had Bob Orton's dad, the Big O. We had the great Malenko. And what was so cool about it is at that time, Vince McMahon and Vern Gagne used to share their main event wrestlers, and they'd send them down to Florida like uh, Bob Backlund would come through here, superstar Billy Graham, Crusher Purdue. Ivan Koloff, all the main event wrestlers would come through Florida and they would all spoon feed Dusty because he was there. He was like the Hulk Hogan or the John Cena at the time. Or, you know, I don't, I don't mean to put myself in the mix. I'm just trying to explain that sure. he was the top baby face and, and all these guys would spoon feed him. So Dusty was postured as the hero, you know, when I was a kid, plus he, he could fill the bill. He could, you know, fill that spot they gave him. It wasn't like, you know, he was weak in any areas. He was a main event guy. You know, he, he sold his ass off. He bled like a pig. He could talk, you know, what he did in the ring as far as his work, his work was on point. So he had us reeled in all the way. And that's what really kind of like made me love the business so much was watching dusty work. And his interviews were just over the top. They were just so on point and they related to, the common man, you know, and to the guys at, at home and to my dad that worked construction and all of his kids growing up. So he was the ultimate package for all of us to watch. And that's what got me hooked was dusty. I'm glad you mentioned the promos because I think, you know, if you're really paying attention, you can see that maybe you had a little bit of dusty roads influence. You know, he talked about the common man, like he talked about, and you talked about your Hulkamaniacs and just the over the top presentation. There had to be some similarities. How big of an influence was he on your interview style? Well, he was a huge influence. I mean, you know, the the weirdest thing, when I went back to work for the WWE, I can't remember when it was, a few years ago before I got fired, they um, asked me to go down to the Performance Center the first day. I mean, I hadn't even been to a Raw. I I hadn't seen Vince. I hadn't, you know, been around anybody. I just talked to Triple H, and we made a decision when I left TNA to go back. And the first thing they asked me to do was go to the Performance Center. And... You know, I wasn't even back in the door yet, but they wanted me to go to the performance center. So I went there and when I talked to all the people that were breaking in, I kind of told them, it's really great that you guys are innovative and doing a bunch of new things, but don't be afraid to steal stuff from guys from the past that works, you know? And I said, you know, like I heard Billy Graham say one time, I pulled the bumper off a Cadillac and it went in one ear and out the other for the fans, but it was so good. I said, Hey brother. When I see uh, King Kong Bundy, I'm going to pull the bumper off a Cadillac Jack and beat him over the head with it. So I said it so it so people would never forget it. And it was just part of Billy Graham's rap, and it was just one of his many one-liners, and he had a thousand of them. And also with Dusty Rhodes, when I saw him stick that finger up one time and shake that finger when they raised his arm, I stole that from him. So everything from the rap, a lot of the stuff in the ring, the way he sold 
the finger that I always would put up on the third time. That was all Dusty Rhodes, brother. So he was a huge influence on me. You know, I'm glad you mentioned uh, being with him at the Performance Center because I think it's pretty well known that he was teaching promo class at the time and such a big influence on them. Was that probably one of your last interactions with Dusty, you know, seeing him at the PC? Yeah, that was. That was one of the last, you know, interactions. And it was it was tough for me because um, when I broke in the business, he was so far involved in, in the finishes and being tight with Eddie Graham and helping run the business here in Florida. I really didn't have a chance to get to know him because I was just a jabroni on the outside trying to get bookings, you know, and, and get going. And then, you know, things kind of turned around for me. And by the time I got up to New York and I was the main event guy in New York, it was weird to have like Mike Graham and Dusty Rhodes come in and be on the undercard. It was kind of like an awkward situation for me. But then, you know, when he was coming up to New York and he started working there full time, we got a chance to know each other and become friends. And, uh, you know, he helped me even then, even when I was in the middle of that Hulkamania run, he'd hit me with suggestions and ideas that were spot on. And I had a chance to work with him in Japan a lot, but you know, it was tough going to the performance center and seeing him those last couple of times. Cause he was in such a good mood. He was so helpful and, you know, he was, even my wife, Jennifer goes, oh my God, I really like that guy. His energy is just so good, you know? And then all of a sudden for him not to be with us, that's kind of like a tough one, you know, because he had such a great influence on me. Well, let's talk about, you know, when you mentioned going to New York and, and he came up and obviously at that point, Hulkamania was running wild. It is a bit of a, uh, a shift because dusty had always sort of been the, the head honcho and now he's one of the boys. Do you remember there being some concern as to whether or not he would be able to sort of fit in or because of Dusty's personality, he just won everybody over? You know, I really didn't have a handle on what was going on and how, now that I look at it from 40,000 feet, I get it. You know, Vince had a vision for what he wanted. It was this marketing dream that he wanted to put in place and make the wrestlers more than just wrestlers, make them huge commodities where, the merchandise and the, and, and the cartoons, you know, he would make or generate as much revenue as he would with the, the live events. And when he brought Dusty Rhodes up, and I was so used to seeing Dusty Rhodes, the American dream, you know, the, the cowbell matches and the strap matches with superstar Billy Graham and Ivan Koloff in the garden that when Vince brought him up and put the polka dots on him, my first thought was, is this a test or is this – you know, is Vince trying to run the guy off or is, or is he, or is he, is this an insult, you know, but you know, Vince was serious about it. And when he put Sapphire with dusty, you know, dusty embraced the thing. And if it would have been me, I wasn't smart enough at the time to realize what was going on with those guys. I would have probably been a jackass and pushed back against it. But dusty was smart enough to know that he need to needed to go with it and work with it. And he did, I don't think anybody else could have pulled it off like he did. You know, but Dusty fit right in with what Vince was trying to do. And it was more instead of just one main event talent, Vince was trying to create a whole bunch of main event talents up there. And when you're running three shows a night, he needed to have those cards stacked. And he wanted to get Dusty in a position, you know, with with this new gimmick that would work with the toys and the merchandise and the cartoons and whatever else he was trying to come up with. So, you know, you sort of touched on it there. A lot of the guys through the years have thought, that putting dusty and polka dots was a rib 
You thought it was a rib at first, too? Oh, yeah, I thought it was because I grew up watching him as the American dream with the cowboy boots on, you know, and, and you know, how dusty was. So sure. my my thought was, why change something that works so well, you know? Right. And uh, Vince, Vince had a different vision, you know, for Dusty. And Dusty, you know, embraced it and went with it, and it worked. Did you ever have a chance to work a match with Dusty Rhodes? It doesn't feel like you would have. Well, I had a, I had a chance in Japan. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that over in Japan. How was dusty Rhodes received to the Japanese fans? A lot of us younger fans may have never even seen that those tapes. Well, you're, you're either over or you're not in Japan. And, uh, I got fortunate enough that when I went over there, I got teamed up with Stan Hansen. And just because I was teamed up with Stan Hansen, um, the guy jeans, the Americans as, as they call them, um, you either get over or you don't, you know, you just go through the motions and get your money and go home and, you know, maybe they'll ask you back and maybe they won't. But if you get over, it can be a home there. I mean, it's kind of like now with the young bucks and all those guys that are tearing Japan up and with Chris Jericho, these guys could, you know, make great livings in Japan if they want to stay over there. And when dust in, like when a Noki would come out, like I got real hot as a heel over there. And I wrestled Antonio Nokia a lot in singles matches. And when I went out, they threw all those paper things in the ring. And I mean, I got over like Rover. I was over like crazy. And then when Nokia would come in and you would listen to the crowd yell for him, then you knew what over really was. I mean, I thought I was over. And then when Nokia came out, I went, okay, now I know what really being over is. <laughs> and, and for some crazy reason, Abdul the Butcher and Dusty Rhodes, when they came out, those sons of guns were over, man. Dusty was, especially when he'd break down before he'd drop that elbow on you, and he'd stick his butt out, and he'd stick his fingers out sideways, how he'd break down in that pose he'd do, and he'd do the shake, shake, rattle, and roll, and hit you with the elbow. The Japanese fans would go crazy. So I had the honor of working with him in tag matches and a couple single matches over there, and I think if you YouTubed it, you could probably see him, but no, it was, it was a lot of fun being in the ring with him. And it's just so weird to be in the ring with a guy that I grew up idolizing and watching. It was just such an honor. You know, what did you learn from dusty? Is there one thing that you could take away? You sort of mentioned when you guys were working for Vince together, that he would even make suggestions to you that were spot on, you know, what, what were some of those examples? If you can share any with us, if, is there one thing you can sort of say, I'll never forget. He told me this or that, whatever it may be. Well, you know, sometimes people say something that, you know, it will stick with me, you know, and when Dusty told me, you know, he goes, Hogan, just listen to the crowd. They'll tell you what to do, you know, and there's so many old timers, you know, that just listen to that crowd that, uh, when Dusty said that, that was like the gospel to me, you know, because I would see guys sitting in the corner and, you know, talking about their matches and stuff like that. And, you know, Stan Hansen, I would just sit there and we just want to know the finish. We didn't want to know what the match was. I carried that with me. You know, I never was a guy that would, uh, <clears throat> sit down and, and talk about matches and a lot of the old timers like that, but I got that from dusty first, you know, and, uh, it was kind of strange because WrestleMania 18, I had been working with, um, uh, God, TNA for a while. Right. And when I went, went, when I went back to, uh, WWF at the time, um, you know, Vince goes, well, if you come back here, you better bring it, you know, cause I was working with a rock 
And when I didn't say anything, but in my mind, I was thinking, well, if I'm on point, you know, you're going to ask me to take it back if I'm on point, you know, but you know, he said, bring it. And it was really weird because, you know, they kind of like go over stuff up there a lot. And I really didn't like doing that, getting in the ring and going over it. And when I went down to Miami to get in the ring with the rock and kind of walk through stuff, his dad was at ringside and, uh, his dad, Rocky Johnson was going rock. Just, just listen to the crowd brother. When you're in there with Hogan, just listen to Hogan. He kind of like said the same thing that, uh, you know, dusty was saying. So a lot of the old timers had that philosophy that if you knew how to work and you were a good worker, you listen to the crowd, you don't have to, you know, sit there in the back room and talk for, you know, four hours about a, you know, 15 minute match. <laughs> well, of course we're, we're on an unfortunate anniversary here of, um, dusty Rhodes leaving us. What do you think his legacy will be with professional wrestling fans and wrestlers? Well, you know, for us that are in the business, he was the consummate professional, you know, there was no one else like him. Um, you could say he was ahead of his time. You could say whatever you wanted. I mean, I just, I just think that if you were to drop him in right now, you know, he could take Cena's place or Hogan's place or the rocks place in the main event at WrestleMania. I mean, he, he was a consummate professional brother. He knew this business inside now. And, and I've known guys, you know, that have been in this business 25 years and they're still marks. You know, I've been around this business almost 35 years and I'm probably the biggest mark there is, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you learn something new every day. As soon as you think you're smartened up, you're a mark because nobody is smartened up. You know, you, you learn something every day and you know, it's, I mean, I just, I just think that that's his biggest you know, achievement is that he could have been a main event anywhere, anytime. And when I say anytime, I mean, any time period, even now, if he was to drop in, he could, he could be the main event. Well, Dusty would be proud. And man, we are proud that you were able to join us here today. I, I, I'm sort of caught off guard. Eric never has me speechless, but when we're in the presence of greatness, uh, I stuttered today and, and it's all because of you, Mr. Hogan, you're the reason I'm a wrestling fan. So thank you for your contributions to the business and for making a very rare appearance with us here today. Well, wait a minute, brother. You're, you're, I'm, I think you're kind of lying to me a little bit. The word on the street is you're a big Ric Flair fan, brother. Well, but I was, a, I was a Hulkamaniac Woo. long before I was about styling and profiling. Well, let me tell you something. I, in my opinion, Ric Flair is the greatest world's champion that ever walked the face of the earth. So you and I are on the same team. Well, that's awesome, man. I can't thank you enough for taking a few minutes today and, uh, I'm going to keep busting your buddy's balls. Now that I know he has one friend in Florida, I don't have to be his friend in Alabama. I'm the only, I'm the only one he's got brother. Good talking <laughs> with you. Thank you very much, sir. Bite me. I can't believe you pulled it off. Eric, look at this. I told you I do that third man thing pretty well. I do it better than anybody else. Don't I, I, I can't argue that at all. And uh, I learned something new today. You have another friend besides me. How about that? I know you can count all my friends on one hand and have enough <laughs> fingers left over to pick pickles off a hot dog. <laughs> That's a great line, man. Well, I had a good time today. Hopefully you did too. Checking out some of our favorite memories, man, from the American dream, dusty roads. And we will see you next week right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, 
it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on, right? Yeah, how many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.